Hello there. My name is Stefan Frost, the host of Game Devastation, the podcast you are listening to right now. Just as a heads up, sometimes there are opinions on this show. Sometimes there are curse words on this show. Sometimes I just sob for about 20 minutes. I don't know why people keep listening to it. Anyway, all these things are from me. They're not really representative of the company I work for or previous companies that I've worked for. So just a heads up, then that's about it. Okay, legal disclaimer now over. This episode of Game Devastation is brought to you by Pixel Dynamo. You can find the latest news, reviews, and updates to all the games that you care about. Check out PixelDynamo.com or follow them on Twitter at PixelDynamo for your up-to-the-second news on the games you care about. Also, in a less commercial way, this is a pretty sweet site. So if you haven't checked it out, PixelDynamo.com, go read it. I think I said PixelDynamo.com enough. PixelDynamo.com. Okay, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to this episode of Game Devastation. My name is Stefan Frost. I am your host, as usual. Uh, today I'm joined with Yosef Mopara. Uh, Yosef, you work at a company called Switchblade Monkeys, and you're working on a game called Secret Ponchos. Um, and you're the creative director, correct? Uh, yeah. Okay, so... Got a lot of questions for you. Uh, the, the first immediate one is, where did the studio come from? Um, it kind of sounds a little cooler when you call it a studio than it really is. Uh, we're, we're just a bunch <laughs> of friends, and we're making a game in our, in our basements. So uh, we've, been, we've been all friends in the industry a long time. We all moved to different studios and stuff, and we just thought, you know, what can we make if we all combined our talents and just kind of made our own thing? So... Um, we don't really actually have an office space or anything. We're all kind of scattered and it's just like a indie passion project. So that's pretty cool. Now, how many people are actually working on, on this non-studio project here? Um, five people work on it full time. And then we have about another, uh, about another five people that work on it on their evenings and weekends and they all have like day jobs. Wow. Okay. That's, that's really awesome. So, uh, if there's five people on it, and then a few more just kind of doing the nights and weekends thing. Where did you get the, the start for this? I mean, wh- where did the you know, beginning of this actually take place? Um, I used to be an art director at uh, Radical. And, um, you know, there, even at a high level, I kind of felt like, um, I mean, it's fun. Working in the big, on the big games is really fun for a lot of reasons. Like you can do a lot of scope and stuff. But... I always felt like, even in a critical role like an art director, I, I felt like I was still just like a cog in the machine. And um, I really wanted to just make my own game to express myself and, you know, just see what I could do. So um, I left Radical in 2010, so it was six, almost six years ago. And I started working on my own little game. And it was just going to be like a stupid little tiny game that um, – that uh, was just just for fun, just so I could make something for my own. I didn't even know how to program. I was going to learn how to program just to do it. And uh, at that point, some of my friends who were also in the industry were like, "Oh, cool! You're you're doing something fun. Like, I'll, I I want to join too." And we realized, like, at a certain point, we had like, you know, like four people that are art at an art director level, like an art director from Rockstar and a senior concept artist from Blizzard, and it was just like a like a, a um, Jose Lopez who does. He's an art director at Hasbro at the time, and he did like character designs for the Batman animated series and stuff. And then we realized, like, wow, we have like probably this is like the best art team I've ever worked on, and we were wasting it on my tiny little game. So then we thought, let's just let's try and make a real game. So that's kind of how it started. But we didn't have any programmers or anything. We had a really stacked uh, art and design team, but no programmers. But we we just decided let's just try and make this game anyhow. So are there any programmers now uh, working yeah. on the project? <laughs> of course. I was so going to say, that was super impressive if you guys were like, you know what, I'm just going to do the art thing and then also become a programmer. Uh, well, as soon as, like, the the kind of game I was going to make was just like a 2D kind of like top-down version of Secret Ponchos where you're just, um, there's a bar in the middle and it's like, like we Tennis and you're just shooting each other over the bar, you know? And it was like, that was like the simplest version of it. And once Jose did a bunch of drawings, they were like so cool and it just felt like a waste doing it on my little game. So um, we decided, okay, well, like my trade, like I'm 
traditionally trained as a 3D animator. So I'm like, if we did this in 3D, like a real game, we could probably do a really cool looking game. So we didn't have any programmers. So what I did was ask that team, I'm like, let's just, like, we just kept designing and drawing and stuff. We had no idea how we'd make it. Almost like how, like, little kids, like, want to start, like, a, you know, a comic book or something. They just start doing it. And they don't really think how they're going to finish it, you know? So, um, but what we did was we decided to, we didn't have any programmers to build a prototype, so we just animated a prototype. And I just animated what the game would look like if we could actually make it. Um, and from there, actually, I learned a lot because I was doing... I've been in the business a long time, and there's always, like, these really thick game design documents and everything. We didn't have anything like that. All we had was this little animation we made of what the game would be like when we're finished. And that actually was a more comprehensive and uh, tangible guide to follow than any any game design documents. So, um, but anyways, we, we send that... that um, animation over to Sony in 2010 and they said well if you could make this you know we'll we'll put it on PS3 uh that was before PS4 was even an, a thing so we we're like cool and then from there we had to try and get some funding to um to hire some programmers and because Sony signed a letter saying that they'll actually give us a distribution platform we applied to the Canada Media Fund and it's like this competition where you know, the most innovative games will get, and experimental games will get funded, and then they selected us as a very experimental game because it's just such a weird form of combat that hasn't been done before. So then we got a little bit of funding, and uh, we, we hired a couple programmers, and we've just been going, going, going. And, yeah, that, that's kind of how we, we started. So th- that's interesting because I think um, having a visual benchmark as a gameplay guide is something you don't see all that often, but it's it's a good way to kind of fuel people to go in a direction to say like, Oh, we want to make something that looks like this. Um, that's pretty cool. So, you know, um, just sorry to, to jump in. It's like, sure. What I found when I did that was, um, so much in a game design document is open for interpretation. Um, when I was animating the video, I had to like, just like all these things that are in between in the, like in between the lines, like, Oh, where is the camera? Does the camera spin? Does the camera, like, you know, how far is it? What happens when it passes through an object? Like, all these little decisions, I had to actually make them right in the video that you would never have to make those those decisions when you do a game design document. And it was just, so it ended up being much more thorough, even though it was only a two-minute video. Now, I wanted to ask, uh, specifically speaking of the, the camera, uh, you guys went with the, the isometric perspective on the game. What kind of led you to the isometric idea instead of, say, third person or side scroller or something like that? It was it was hard because we wanted to put the camera behind the character because our characters look so cool. Like That's one of the things people really love about our game is the character design. But we really wanted to do something different and... Um, in, when I was messing around with the previses early, one of the um, previses had the camera up top. And what I noticed was it just completely changed the gameplay because you could see exactly down to the, the millimeter how far away an opponent is. If they're like one centimeter out of your range or, or you know that kind of stuff. And we realized like, wow, it, it actually brings opportunities for it to play more like a fighting game that has that precision spacing and, and, and then than a team shooter, you know? And so we decided to go that way because it was, um, it would make a more creative and innovative game. You guys were at Evo, correct? Did I see that? Yeah, we got to invited to Evo and that was a huge kind of turning point for the game. Yeah, I, wh- what was interesting to me is that you were just talking about the game being kind of a fighting game, but, you know, this this is more of a twin-stick shooter kind of look. What what makes you think, yeah, this is more fighting game than it is, you know, shooter or something like that? So a lot of people, when they first look at it, they think it's going to be like a twin-stick shooter. And um, we kind of thought that when we first started making the game, too. But when we approached it like a twin-stick shooter, it wasn't fun. Like, all you do is, like, shoot and at each other. And it works great for AI hordes, but it wasn't fun. And um, I have, like, a, a competitive... Um, boxing background and uh, we applied a lot of those uh, elements from from boxing into our game and uh, I played a lot of Street Fighter and Soul Calibur also and you know those those games actually play very much like the same way that you box Um, and uh, and so we when we started applying these principles to secret ponchos it started feeling like like 
like a game that you can actually get good at with a high skill ceiling where you could like counter your enemy's moves. You can try and make them think you're doing one thing and do another. And it started uh, it started actually being fun to play against each other. So we didn't actually, mechanically, the only thing similar with a twin stick shooter is that it's the camera's up top and that you move with the right left analog stick and you aim with the right. Um, what what makes it like a fighting game really, if you, this this will sound a little bit nerdy and abstract, but if you take away the context of guns and you take away the context of isometric, so you just think of your screen, it's like a two-dimensional square, right? And in a fighting game like Street Fighter, you have a character and your attacks have a certain amount of range, a certain amount of distance that will, you know, um, and if you can impose, if you can get your enemy in that distance, you're going to do damage, and if you don't, you're not, right? And th their enemy has a certain amount of distance, and the whole game is about imposing your spacing getting into your spacing when you want to and keeping the guy out of their spacing when you when you don't want to. And that's how Chung-Li and Dalsim work in Street Fighter and all those characters, right? And Secret Ponches works the same way. It just it's just now, you know, if you if you look at it from that context, it's the same when you strip away all the all the context. But then now when you take a look at it, it's like that's what it is. It's like Kid Red rolls into his short range, takes a couple shots and then rolls dive rolls out before you know, somewhat like the long-range rifle guy can get his, sh his shot, you know? Um, or And so it's just all, it's just that, that footsies, that competing with spacing. And uh, it, it's funny, no, a lot of people, when they look at it, they think of MOBAs because it's like an isometric game. But, but um, for us, mechanically, you know, we feel like it's like a fighting game. When you are developing classes and, um, and and balancing and all that fun stuff, where where do you start? Where is it where you're kind of saying like, okay, well, we've we've got Kid Red and we've got all these different characters, but where where do you begin? We take a different route than traditional design. So traditionally in game design, um, everything has its function first, and then you for, sort of film the form after. So you might say, okay, well. You know, um, a MOBA has, you know, your 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 glass tank rule and your, you know, other tank, like your big, or sorry, your glass cannon and your tank and then your, like, support guys and all that stuff. And then they sort of, like, give it to their artists and say, okay, can you make something that fills this role? Um, and those rules are really good. I mean, they're, they're kind of cliches for a reason because they, they hold up pretty well. But if you think within that box, it feels, you're kind of confining yourself to the way we work is a little bit weird and um, is we kind of work with the art first. So we don't care about the the design in the beginning. What we do is we say, Jose draws, we let the art influence it. So Jose draws a really cool matador and we're like looking at it and going like, how would a matador fight against a gunslinger? And we have no idea, but it gives us a creative problem to solve. And then once we start trying to solve that problem, we come up with design mechanics that like a matador would use against a, a, gun, a gunfighter. And it, I mean, sometimes we're beating our head against the wall because there's no, you know, there's no previous reference of how a matador fights a gunfighter in a video game. But that's kind of cool. It leads us to, um, you know, after we work our way through this creative problem, we end up with something original. And, uh, and when that's kind of the, the benefit that we like to this approach. How many characters did you guys have at the start of the game? Uh, when we launched on PS4, we had five characters, and we're launching the, the Most Wanted Edition on PC, and that's going to have ten characters. Now, so you started with those five. Um, let's talk about the balancing from that perspective, and then we'll move on to the ten. Um, sure. So when you, you, know, you made your first character, you're like, okay, this is what we're going to do for this first character. You make the second, you make the third. Where do you kind of start to balance there because there, there's numerous things i would assume there's you know damage values there's movement distance there's you know hitbox ranges right there's all these different things how did right. you look at that and say okay th this is this is good enough for this character against all these other different character types so i think that like normally when you start the stuff you can have like a data table type approach right where you're like okay kid Killer does one shot that does 20 damage, and he can fire it once every second, right? And then you're like, Kid Red, he's got two little guns, and they do half the half the damage as his thing, and he can fire them twice as fast. So you're like, the DPS is balanced. So you kind of first start with that. But the truth is, 
that's never accurate. It's just only a starting point because even if mathematically everything is balanced, there's just all these other factors like, yeah, but the prob there's less probability that you're going to land two shots than you're going to land one shot, right? And there, there's all these... So, so then you end up just play test. You end up just doing your first pass by the math and then you just don't get married to it and then you're just like, okay, everything has to be by feel now, you know? And then you start playing a lot because you, you there's so many subtle differences between the characters and you don't know how a human being is going to leverage those so you just kind of got to play it and then make adjustments and so what we do is we look at um, our main goal is that any of the characters can be competitive at a high level so if we look at the leaderboards and no one can be uh, like say there's no kid reds on the leaderboard we're like okay there's something wrong like this this you know you can't be good he seems like he's not being competitive and then we take a look at and we you know we play the game every night um, for like three hours in our testing and uh, you know that was one of the things that's really good about early access is we got some really good players in that pool too and and so yeah we just tune by feel if, if that makes sense no absolutely now the game has been out for a bit um, how often do you guys get your asses kicked by players when you're playing the game it happens in phases like when we first launched on early access we were the best because nobody played it before and then within like a couple weeks the players just got really good and started like just destroying us every week on our own game it was really embarrassing and we do a twitch stream <laughs> we do a twitch stream where we actually like play with them so like imagine i don't know we just thought it'd be cool like what if we could play you know warcraft 3 against the blizzard guys that made it that'd be such a neat experience so we wanted to kind of do that and so when we go on our stream we usually patch in the new changes and then we like talk to our community about what they are and then we just play it with them and um they were beating us really bad but when we had to launch the ps4 version we had to lock ourselves and just play the game so much um for testing like we were like testing maybe like seven hours a day uh, on that thing like in addition to our regular work so so then when we came back to the game we were actually really good at it again um now we're actually pretty competitive like we just I mean the community community's really good and 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 sometimes they you know so, sometimes they they get a little bit uh like like um competitive so then we 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 jump in like we jumped in a tournament cuz we were missing some players and and we won that we were really surprised and the community was really surprised but but they definitely <laughs> keep us on our toes if we didn't play every night they would they would destroy us right well that's uh that's typically how it goes, I've noticed for the most part anyway. Um, w one of the things that I also kind of wanted to talk about was map design and how that relates to uh, the characters that you've designed. So when you guys were designing the maps, was the idea to take into account all the different movement ability types that the characters had? Or was it just kind of, we're just going to design this map and then we'll just play test and see how it goes? There was this comic book, a graphic novel called Blade of the Immortal. Have you heard of that? I have not. And it's about a samurai, and every every issue he has to deal with a different type of challenge. And um, this one guy he's fighting, this 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 character Manji, he's the main character. He has a whole bunch of different weapons, and like he's got like tons of swords and all this stuff in his in his uh, kimono. And he's he's fighting this this guy in this really tight like apartment type thing and there's lots of furniture and stuff and the and manji's got this like really cool sword and the first thing the guy does is he goes he just runs around and he starts knocking over all the cabinets and the armoires and everything so now it's like really dense and it's really hard to like even get around a corner and now all of a sudden manji's sword becomes like a weakness and that guy just has this little dagger all of a sudden he, his little dagger is like a huge a asset for him because the environment changed, you know, the, and uh, and what where Manji can't even really swing his sword. That other guy's got like the huge upper hand, and uh, this really, I don't know, it just had such an impact on me when I when I read this, and I just, I kind of like it's always in my head when I'm doing level design that, you know, in a in like a graveyard where there's a ton of little cover objects and places to zigzag in and out of. Kid Red, who's got really short range and a lot of speed, he's going to be at an advantage. Whereas Deserter, in like an open field where he can snipe people, or Gordo with his Gatling, 
might be at a huge advantage. So it really, you know, it's up to you to impose the location that you want on your enemy. You know, if you if, if deserter goes with a sniper rifle and tries to go into like the dense, you know, um, cemetery areas, then then he's he's not going to be playing to his strength. And so we wanted to make maps that kind of you know that that have have different textures in them of density and, and of open areas. And so usually when I start a map, I just draw like a square. And I just draw a bunch of X's representing density. And I'm like, okay, well, what happens if we have a map that's really dense on the outsides with cover objects and it's really open in the inside? Well, you know, another one could be what happens if it's really dense in the middle and open on the outside? What happens if we have one that's sort of even? You know, what, what happens if we have one where there's like a lot of interiors that loop? And so each level, we, we try and make it have a different feel in terms of... Um, the the flow that it, it pushes and sort of you know the the variance in, in in density um and we try and make it so that some parts of the map are stronger for one character and some parts might be stronger for another character type and um it's up to the players to sort of impose that strategy like if you're really getting your butt kicked you know you and you have like this last little bit of health you might try and take the fight into an area that that gives you you know the higher ground absolutely um one of the things that drew me into this game was the the artistic style of it. Um, when I saw the trailer for it, I was like, man, this looks badass. I, I love the way that the animations are are playing out. I love the character design. The the mood and the feel of it was, was great. Um, so where did that come from? Was that all the concept artist, Jose, that you were talking about earlier? Yeah, Jose, uh, well, Jose and I have been friends a long time. And he, um, I was art directing on a project about eight, eight years ago or seven years ago. And, um, I really wanted something like just edgy and different. And I remember seeing the Batman animated series and I was like, Fuck, these characters are so cool. Um, and I, I waited, I waited fast forwarded to the credits and I looked at who the artist was and then I just reached out to him, you know, and it was Jose. And I was like, uh, I reached out to him later. I'm like, Hey, you know, I have this this game that we're doing, and I know you're doing TV stuff, but would you be interested in doing some concepts for video games? And he was like, sure. And so we worked together on that project, and it kind of got, it got canceled later, but it was super cool looking. And um, Jose and I built a really good relationship. So when I started this project, he's like, hey, dude, like that that's really cool. I'm in. You know, if you need help, I'm in. So then uh, he became kind of one of my partners, and uh, he just got this really cool comic book way of drawing. And... You know, it's really well suited for 2D. It was so fun with having a 3D team trying to interpret how to make his crazy characters in 3D. And it took a long time and a lot of different models before we figured out how to how to translate it into it. You know, he's got this crazy gorilla style way of drawing. Yeah, the shapes on the characters are are great. Like the silhouettes are completely different. Um, you know, you have some characters that are super beefy. They have that almost triangle chest at the top, and then like you know skinny legs at the bottom, and guys that are really lanky and long. And it, the way that it kind of separates it out is is a good way to kind of also determine gameplay wise. Okay, this guy, I know this guy because of his silhouette, and these are the abilities that he has just based off the visuals alone. So it's definitely a, a perk to having that. Yeah, he does, those things. he does a lot with, with shape and silhouette. And um, he also does like, you know, something else that makes his drawings really interesting is he just, he pushes angles so much so that like, I think like characters have these like pointy sharp angles where you wouldn't expect it. And he's just really bold, you know, with his drawing style. And it was really a lot of fun for our artists like Tony uh, Sang and Jared Fry to try and interpret how to feel that three-dimensionally and and i think the key was we just started thinking of them like toys and and then all of a sudden it started kind of clicking more now uh, i also wanted to talk animation uh and how it relates to gameplay because these these characters are so you know animated looking and they don't even even when they're not moving they look animated right so um how did you guys determine what the animation style would be when you started to get to that phase um, well, I, I do all the animation on the game. Um, so what I usually do is I look at Jose's characters and 
I, I know that in this game, like, if I'm not careful, I'm going to be animating, you know, like, on one character, they might have, like, diff- like 30 different walk cycles. So I'm just like, oh, my God. And then there's 10 characters. So if that's, like, 300 walks, and it's going to get really tedious and, like, if I'm not creative, you know, and because I'm just going to be animating the same stuff over and over, it's going to feel boring to watch. So what I do is... I make these little backstories for each character about what they are like. You know, like Kid Red, he, he was like orphaned. Um, he, he was orphaned at a young age and he just kind of picked up the guns and that the way of the gun is sort of like what, you know, he, he learned. And he, he thinks it's all about being flashy, you know, like he'll spin his guns when he doesn't need to. And like, you know, like when you, someone starts learning karate and then they just think that all the advanced moves are like the way to go because they look flashy and that that's kind of how he, how he is, you know, and like when people get good, they just become more streamlined and efficient. They don't, they stop doing that stuff, but it's, it's the sort of the expert beginner that is all flashy. So Kid Red is like that even, and it informs me when I'm doing animations, then it gives me so much to work with to make his animations different from someone else because I'm like, okay, how does he draw his gun? Okay, well, he's going to, instead of just drawing it, he's going to like spin it and do little tricks with it. And then even if it's a little bit slower and then I actually, integrate that then into his gameplay style it's like kid red has a slower draw speed than the other characters because he's twirling his guns and all that stuff right um but so he's actually has a disadvantage there and then he has an advantage you know in his fire rate or that kind of stuff so it's in our game the aesthetics actually influence the design quite a bit and um it going back to that thing we were talking about with the matador you know and uh you know and then i think with animation it also helps me make every character feel so different. You know, I look at Killer and he's just precise. So I'm just like, this guy doesn't, he, he doesn't waste any movement. So he just like draws his gun and points it exactly. He'll wait until he's got the shot and then pull the trigger and it'll be a perfect shot. So then we say, okay, well, that's his personality. Then Killer's got to have a really slow fire rate. So if he misses that shot, he's going to be really punished. But if he hits that shot, it's going to be a, like a really effective shot, you know? So then we... um it's it's uh it's kind of weird, but the animation actually influences all their balancing and their their strengths and weaknesses because we we put their personalities front and center and then make all their decisions based out of that. Now, are you implementing the the character movement on this stuff, or is there a designer that's that's doing this? Uh, no, I I do all of that too. Okay, so the that's super interesting because you're not only handling the part where you control the movement, but you're also establishing the look. Um, do you think that's that's kind of a benefit as a result of having the ability to do both of those things? Yeah, it's super cool because then I don't have to uh, sell myself on any on any idea. Well, I <laughs> I do, but it probably happens in these really fast inner dialogues. So um, yeah, it's cause sometimes you know sometimes on a team someone does really good work, but it's it's sort of off target with the vision. You know, like they might make an awesome draw gun animation, but then it's like it's not really supporting that idea of what the character's personality is. And, you know, it's just a pain in the ass or a fight to get them to change it. So, well, like, I think I can skip all those those steps. Gotcha. Um, uh, one of the questions that kind of popped up for me when I was checking the game out was, um, what engine did you guys use to develop the game? We first built the game in Unity, um, you know, from 2010 to 2013. And when we took it to PAX... That was where Sony actually scouted the game and said, hey, oh, this looks really cool. I can't believe you guys really made this <laughs> because we, they only, last time they saw it was a little concept video in 2010. And they were like, would you like to get this on PS4? And back then, we, we knew to make it a PS4 game, we would, have, we would want it to be 60 frames per second and we'd want to make it like high quality graphics. So high quality graphics and 60 frames per second that has those are two things that sort of clash a little bit. So then you need a really fast engine, and so we had to abandon Unity because Unity is a, a really great engine for prototyping quickly, and and you know it does a lot of stuff for you, but it's not the fastest. It's not a performance engine. So we switched over to Sony's Fire Engine. It's their proprietary one, and it's just all. I mean, if you want something in there, you have to program it yourself. Like it doesn't come with anything rarely, and but it's super fast as a result. And so we rebuilt the entire game in the new engine. 
Um, but actually, it worked out really well. If I actually, if we get the opportunity to make a game, I think, I think we would probably do something similar where we prototype it in an engine that's a quickest prototyping engine, and then we build it for real, you know, in in a performance based engine after. Because I would never have thought of that before, but it just it makes sense. Like you don't if we tried to design the game in in fire it you know it's, it's a lot harder to get from point a to b because everything's manual but um having this unity version of our game that was a prototype it was like a perfect design doc like we knew exactly what what it needed to do and how it needed to feel and that we could build it that way in fire the next question i wanted to talk about is is actually a little bit more about you um we've been talking about the game a lot and the mechanics in the game but uh, how did you get into the industry? Where where was your start, and uh, what was your position? Um, I think I first decided I wanted to be in the industry when I I think that I I remember like as a kid just seeing intros to games like um, Warcraft One and <laughs> and uh, Warcraft Two and like you know just the Ultima 7 and just being like really mesmerized by these by the cinematics and I wanted to become an animator so um, my first job well my first I taught myself at a really young age how to animate and use these 3D programs and uh, like I was like you know in early high school like grade 10 and stuff and I actually had an interview at Bioware when I was in high school and um, they sent me some, I sent them my demo reel and then they sent me back a thing going, cool, can you do this art test? And then I, I did the art test and then they brought me down for an interview and I was just a kid and, and they were really surprised because I guess I was applying for a lead character artist position and I was, and they were just, the guy was just, it was like one, actually one of the, the founders of the company and he was just, it was the, he must be just in shock and he was like, okay, I got to, Gotta tell you honestly, like you're just a kid, and we, um, <laughs> you know, we we need we need a little bit more maturity for for like a, a lead position like this. I was kind of like, what the heck, you know, like uh, I passed your art test like like that, but I didn't realize <laughs> there's so much more more required in a high stress position like this. But I mean, they asked me questions like, you know, why do you want to work here? And I would. And you're supposed to say like, oh, because you guys really challenge this or you really push quality. But my answer was like, oh, it'd be so cool to have a job. I could move out of my house and buy a motorcycle. And so I, uh, <laughs> I, I ended up um, going to school just, just to kind of get my paper because I couldn't figure out. Like, I mean, I had a really good head start, um, but I went to school to kind of get, get my papers. And uh, after that, I got a job at Mainframe. And my first job was animating on uh, Beast Machines. It was like a Transformers cartoon. Mm, okay. And uh, I worked there for a couple of years and moved to Radical as an animator and worked on Simpsons Hit and Run. And then I became a lead animator and then an art director there. And then uh, um, and then I'm doing like creative directing on Secret Ponchos. But I'm actually going back and doing all the other steps that I originally, like going back to my roots and just doing all the animation on the game and stuff like that too. So uh, what, I always ask this question, like what is a creative director to you? Um, what do you see as the the vision of the creative director? What's what's the the job of that person? I think like every game has to have someone who's just sort of in charge because there's a lot of subjective decisions and um, they're all good. And if you don't have someone just sort of pulling the trigger, you could just kind of get caught in these like little debating things where you're debating and everybody's right. So it's like you know, and I think. I think on a team, a creative director is just someone that the whole team trusts just to pull the trigger on on these decisions and to sort of keep um, all the little details connected within a framework of a higher level goal, you know? So it's like when you, how I view the creative director role is like, you know, when you write a paper, you have a thesis, right? And your your thesis is like the point that you're making with your paper. And so every every paragraph Every sentence, and I guess as a result, every word and every letter is there to support that thesis. That's the connective tissue. But if you don't have a thesis, you just have a bunch of random stuff. And I think that the creative director's job is to really understand that thesis and to make sure that everyone's sort of headphones on and they're doing their like micro detail stuff that is actually like supporting that, you know? 
yeah, I think that's a, a great example of, of what a creative director should do. Um, so uh, another question I often ask on, on the show is what would you tell people that are aspiring to be in the games industry? Um, recommendations, tips, how they should get their start? Should they go to school? Um, you know, what should they study? That sort of thing. There's so many great ways now to get into the industry and it's just changed so much even with indie development. So I, um, I mentor at VFS, at Vancouver Film School, and I, it's, it blows my mind how these programs have changed. Like now, the kids in that those classes are actually just making games together. Like it's like almost like they're like an indie team and they're just making a, a game for their school project. And uh, so I think that like, you know, one the old-fashioned way is, and this is totally awesome. This is how I did it: was you just get a job at a big company and you're like the new guy who who's surrounded by all the bigger people and you just try and like pick their brains and learn and do whatever they say and try and get good at your job. But you learn a lot that way. Um, and the kind of crappier and harder the job is, it's almost good because it's just like you, you get better conditioning, you know, you get used to like higher quotas and all that kind of stuff. And then you start to learn, you know, the creative side of it after like first you have to learn you have to actually just learn how to do your craft you know and then then you start to be able to challenge creatively the ideas and stuff but um that's that's the traditional path and now there's also another path it's the reverse it's like just start on the creative so it's like sometimes people get out of school and they can't get a job so they just start making their own little indie game or going to little indie jams and stuff like that and they just start honing their creative skills and by following their hearts and making what they like they're actually learning to do their craft as a result because it has to they have to make something right so i think uh i i think that if i was to try and get a job i would probably want to start at a big company you know and just at the bottom because i believe in the, just getting all that harsh training first you know and then breaking off and doing your own thing but if you can't if you're struggling then i recommend just kind of going the other way and just start making stuff you know every second be making stuff going to indie game jams and stuff meeting people and just the more stuff you make you'll be gaining valuable experience and um like i don't know when you look at the octodad guys the guys that made octodad like they were out of school octodad was their school project and then they just re remade the game after school and it, it now they're like running a successful company so it's like they're straight to the top so there's not you don't have to start at a big company and work your way up, but you, if you don't do that, you have to be like just creating, creating, and be ready to lock yourself in your apartment for a year and not get paid. What do you? Stuff. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I, I was going to ask. Um, now that you're kind of doing your own thing, what is the the most stressful part about your job? Because it sounds like there's a lot of cool things, but what's the most the stressful part of it? I think. Um, you know, getting, I, I think that as we're not just a developer, I guess we're kind of a publisher now because we have to publish our own game and there's a ton of expertise. We don't have like how to market our game, how to get like exposure, all that kind of stuff. And we're at the end of the day, we're, we're, we're creative people and we're game developers, but we're not like business people or, you know, and we don't have experience in marketing and stuff. So I think some, our game right now, it's kind of, um, it's, especially the Steam version because we've just been putting so much love and polish into it. It's becoming a really fun game to play and it's really refined, but it doesn't have a lot of exposure. And our community describes the game as like a hidden gem, but they're like, we found this game by accident. You know, how come you guys aren't on the Steam front page and stuff? So I think that stuff is a little bit stressful because it's like, I don't know how to get it there. You know, like we're just going to, like all, sometimes we, we get stuck and we're like, we don't really know how to solve these marketing problems. Let's just keep working on our game and make it better and better. And maybe an opportunity will come up. So I think that, you know, I, I think that a lot of times people don't go into business because they don't want to be business people. So they go into creative fields. But sometimes when you go into a creative field and you hit a certain level or you take a certain risk, you end up having to learn the business side of things. And, uh, you know, and I, I've seen it a few times. I've seen it like my... Um, my old cello teacher, she had to start writing business plans and grant proposals and all this stuff so she could do the creative projects she wanted, you know, so she could get funding for it. And I was just like, wow, it's just funny how we all, if you really want to do your own thing, even if it's the most creative thing in the world, 
you end up having to learn business, you know, and that's that's kind of uh, one thing that I was really sheltered from when I was wor- working in other game companies. No, it makes a lot of sense. Um, now, uh, personally, what games are you playing right now, and what games are you uh, you into at the moment? Um, I I really like fighting games and competitive games. And I think it's because, like I mentioned before, I used to kind of competitively box. And uh, I don't know, like when I play a game and I get beaten at it, I just want to become like the best at it. Like I just want to obsess over it. So I don't actually play a ton of games, but when I play a game, I I try and play it like a lot for like years. So I was playing a ton of Soul Calibur at the start of the project. Um, You know, we were playing, Chris and I were playing tons of Soul Calibur 4. And then we... Then I switched over to League of Legends and Dota and the MOBAs. And uh, and recently I've had to kind of take a break and just really f- focus just entirely on, on Secret Ponchos. But um, I, you know, I, I did take a little break from competitive games because you need to put so... Because it's like it's endless. You're, you're just refining your skills. And then I started just playing some, sto- some, some story games because this... A nice contained little forty-hour experience. So I was playing Shadows of Mordor, and um, I, I really enjoyed it. But I think uh, I think the game I'm really looking forward to that, like every day, I fire up my PS4 and I check if it's activated yet, but it's not. Is Street Fighter Five, and cause they disabled the beta, and that's I think that's what I I think I'm kind of back to. I really want to. I got that competitive itch, you know. Yeah, almost definitely. Um... And you were saying you have that background in boxing. Uh, one of the things, so I, I do Krav Maga, and one, one of the things that I noticed was after doing the Krav Maga, I was like, you know, Street Fighter actually translates the fighting thing actually pretty well. Like, it, I mean, it's not exactly 100%, but I mean, the idea of like when to cover and, you know, parrying and, you know, when you're, when you're going to hit and when you should put a lot of energy into something and timing and, all that stuff actually translates really well. Yeah, I didn't. I was blown away. Like Soul Calibur for me and Street Fighter were the two games where you can apply your same thinking from like competitive fighting. And it's a video game where you're throwing fireballs and like flaming uppercuts. Like I have no idea why it works that way. But I think what they do is they boil it down to like really simple. It's about spacing and timing and when to put pressure and when to you know make the guy overextend so that you can counter and and all those kind of principles that are in fighting apply really well whereas i'm sure they apply in other fighting games too but sometimes when games are about air juggling and stuff i don't actually um it doesn't connect anymore with me like the way that i think when i'm boxing and that i don't actually enjoy those games so like i really like soul caliber as opposed to tekken because it doesn't have all the crazy air juggling and stuff. It's more about like, you know, either hitting the guy, making the guy think he's you're going to hit him in one place and you hit him in another place, you know, or making the guy think that you're going to do something and then he does something and then you anticipate that and you counter it. You know, I, I really like that kind of more more simple foundation that you can, I don't know, that applies to actual physical stuff. Is, is that kind of what you what you find too? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing... Um... After a while, too, when you have like the massive amounts of combos and stuff like that, too, it gets a little bit annoying because you're like, okay, I get it. I'm getting my ass beat and I can't break out of this. Or, you know, maybe you can break out of it once, but then you, you can't do it. So it gets a little bit more annoying. I think stuff like Street Fighter, like Alpha Third Strike, you know, they have it seemed like a little bit slower and more, you know, deliberately paced um, as opposed to something like even Marvel versus Capcom, which is like crazy fast, right? Um, mm-hmm. It just, it seemed more you had to make your decisions and punish people when they mess up and, you know, make sure that when you do a deliberate strike that, you know, it's well worth the effort because otherwise you're going to get punished. Um, and it's the same, I think when, when you're boxing or, you know, you're doing any sort of martial art, it's just, if you, uh, if you're like, Oh, I got this guy and he blocks it and you're like, well, my arm's out now. I'm probably going to get punched in the ribs. You know, it's, it's kind of similar in that, in that way. Um, yeah, yeah. that's and and I like Marvel versus Capcom and and Tekken and visually I just for me the you know there's some people that like like those that camp of games better but I like the chunkier like I like you know Street Fighter instead of Marvel versus Capcom or I like Soul Calibur instead of Tekken because it's just chunkier and more physical. 
No, agreed. Um, so earlier you were talking about having to test the game a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And so typically in, in AAA devs or you know even medium-sized developers, they have a, a testing staff, right? And their job is to just break the game and then relate to the developers like this is what you need to fix. Um, because your team is so small, I'm assuming that's that's basically all you guys do after a certain point, right? We, every night, like in a, probably 11 minutes, those guys are going to show up at my house and um, we start testing and we just kind of test throughout the, you know, late, late evening into the, into about midnight. And yeah, it's, it's just, you know, it's kind of good though, because we know our game and we know what it really needs to do. And then when we're tuning it, because we're playing it so much, we know all the exploits and stuff, but it's a lot of hard work. Like I, I would really love to be in a position if the game's successful to have some testing support, you know, from a, from an external group or like our own QA guys. But I think, I do think that it's really important that we test our own stuff like a lot because I, when I worked at big companies, we the game de- development team never really tested and most of the time they never even played through the, the whole game. They just do their own little piece and I, I kind of think that you, you need to have an idea of the big picture if you're working on something. Well, Yeah, I think that's absolutely critical when you're developing a game, right? Because somebody asked me the other day... Um, you know, when I was launching Wildstar, they were like, oh, did you play that much at home? I was like, yeah, all the time. Uh, the, I feel like if if the developers who are making the game are not familiar with the, the content and, you know, the struggles or the downsides of the game, then they're not going to fix those things and make it better. So, you know, I think it's kind of critical that you, you you dog food, you know, the experience, right? Wildstar has a very cool art style, by the way. Congratulations on that. Hey, thanks. I had nothing to do with it. Uh, but I will relay that to <laughs> <laughs> to Matt Makarski, who, who helped uh, identify a lot of that, um, who actually interviewed on the show not too long ago. Awesome. Um, yeah. So uh, one of the other things I, I wanted to ask you as well um, was wh- where do you hope that this stuff goes in the future? I mean, clearly you want to make lots of money and sell lots of copies, but where where do you see the game going? Man, it's so crazy. It's like a roller coaster where like literally every day there's hope that we can continue as a studio if the game's successful. And then there's like doubt where like, man, how are we going to get people to know to, to know about this game? Um, we just don't have that kind of marketing power. Our competition is like Blizzard and Dota and it, like uh, like here's the storm. Like it's we're not we're not. Uh, so it's pretty terrifying. So we don't know if we're going to be able to continue as a studio or not. It, it all kind of hinges on the success of the PC version. Um, what we learned from Evo, like around the time of Evo, we kind of started doubting ourselves because we like our game, but kind of everybody probably like thinks their own baby is beautiful and, you know, that kind of stuff. And we were wondering, like, maybe we just, you know, maybe it's not catching on because it's not a good game. And we, we couldn't figure it out. And uh because we had such a lukewarm reception on PS4. And um, well, when we took it to Evo, we were actually invited to Evo. Uh, I didn't know this, but the guy who invited us was actually Seth Killian. And um, and he played the game at Sony at, at E3. And uh, I just knew this guy, Seth, was inviting us and getting us at Evo. And that was a great experience. But when we went there... The com- competitive community, it just like hit us exactly when we needed it. Because we had this moment of vulnerability where we were all just like scared. Our game's not going to take off. And, and we started doubting ourselves. And uh, the competitive community, they really look at your game and they don't care about the art style or they don't care about the presentation. They just see through and they're like looking at what are the fundamentals of how your game works and how does a player fight each other. And, you know, and then they look at the details like your hitboxes and your stun blocks. And it's like... It's like you're standing there naked and they could see through all your stuff, right? And uh, they really embraced the game. And they were, they were to them, they were like, this is so cool. And we didn't have to explain to them how it's like a fighting game. You know, they would just be like, oh, no, we get it. And usually it's like a really abstract thing to explain, right? Like that whole little spiel I did in the beginning. And they're, like, they're just like, I get it. It's just, this is really cool. And they had a bunch of words like they would call you know how we talk about spacing and in and out and all that kind of. They're just like, oh yeah, yeah. You mean footsies? Yeah, this game has great footsies. And it, it was, uh, <laughs> it it was so cool. And 
even uh, we we were lucky. Even like some like championship level Street Fighter players and stuff came by, and like this is really fun. Like, how can we help you? How can we support you? So we came back from Evil Pump. Like we we kind of knew that our weak point was we were scared to say that this is a super competitive hardcore experience. Like that's what the game is. Like if you suck at it, you're gonna lose and you're gonna get beaten up. And um, that's what we were making. But we were always scared to put it in front of people and say that because we thought we would like lose the mainstream audience. But I think as a result, if the mainstream audience plays a game like that and they're not handheld through it and then they lose a lot, they're not having fun, um, they're not going to enjoy it anyway. So we might as well just be upfront with it, you know? And then once we started embracing that message, we the right people started looking at the game and then things started kind of building momentum. Um which is good. Um, one of the, the things that you were talking about with releasing the game on PS4, uh, they did, you kind of did the early access thing sort of, right? Uh, was that kind of what I saw when you did the release or was it like, this is the game and this is what we're doing? So we, we, um, we first were making the game on PC and then we started making it on PS4 and then the PC community asked us while we're in P- PS4 development if we could bring it to, to Steam and we were looking at doing a PS4 beta but it takes a long time to get a patch through, like a certification, all that stuff. And then we looked at early access, and we're like, "Wow, on early access, we could just like patch this thing like every day if we wanted to." So we decided, let's let's just do our beta testing on early access, and then maybe even people might buy it, and that might help us fund a PC version, right? So we just did that. We used the early access community to help us stress test our game, and and we learned a ton from it. But then we had to quickly. Sh- like abandon the early access and put all our attention on getting that PS4 version shipped um, because the deadline was coming up. So once we got that out, we realized a lot of the stuff that the early access community didn't care about, like they didn't care that we didn't have a tutorial and they didn't care that we like um, the game was hard and competitive. Like they just, I, I think the guys that we didn't really think this, but I guess the guys who play early access games, they're buying a beta. They're pretty hardcore players but on PlayStation Plus, a lot of casual players that just got the game for free and they don't play fighting games or PvP games got the game, and then they needed, you know, some better onboarding and stuff. And we just got killed there. Like, like they were like, "What the heck is this? That the developers don't even teach us how to play this game and stuff." So we, we kind of, um, we saw that experience happening. And like, competitive players really liked it on PS4, but they had to like go through that flame. You know, where they had to, like, lose a bunch and then start learning how to play and then get, like, you know, get better and better. And then once they learned the ropes, they really enjoyed it. So what we decided was instead of doing a straight port for PC, let's actually put the game back on early access and let's just do, like, nine months of development. And let's apply all the stuff that we learned from the PS4 version that we couldn't get in and let's just make the game perfect. Like, let's just suck it up and do that. So it might be it might be a suicide pill for us because our game had this sort of marketing peak and this like hype peak back then. But instead of putting the PC version out at that point, what we're saying is, no, no, we, we want to integrate and take action on all these things we've learned before we put it out. So now our game is sort of like quiet again. Um, but our, our user review scores on Steam have just gone way up. They've gone from like 70% approval to after a patch we did, 97% of the people have been giving it approval. So we know creatively we're doing the right stuff, but now our challenge is going to be getting it back front and center, the new version, so it's not, people don't like look at it as, you know, you know what I mean? They, they, they know it's it's different, so. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, so we've talked to, we've, I have talked to a lot of people about um, the early access versus just releasing the game, and it seems to me that, um the one of the main concerns is you come out with the game and people go oh cool the game's out i can play it and then they play it and they go eh, it's kind of broken i'll come back but then they don't come back right because right. they're like i played it and that game was meh so um it seems like a, a lot of the developers that i've talked to really push the idea of having something that's more polished um, and even before the early access has had a, a decent amount of you know beta testing or stuff like that but it seems like it's um, it's a good way, though, for smaller dev studios to kind of say, okay, well, this is the, the crux of the game. We need mass market testing, and this is a good way to do it and still make a little bit of cash so we can continue to keep doing it. Um, 
so if, if you were based off of that, if you could go back in time, would you change your mind or would you still do the same thing? If we didn't do early access first, we would have made a lot more mistakes on our PS4 version because there was a lot of bad stuff in there that we didn't know uh, and that the community helped us find it. Right. Um, but early access did interfere with our momentum on PC. So like when you come out on early access, you're only selling your game to a very small subset of the Steam community. But you're like, you're playing your launch card. So it's like you're, you're playing that really powerful hand you have on a really small uh, audience, right? And then and then it's sort of... So, I mean, that's the trade-off. And, and uh, you might not... I think at your launch, if, if your launch is when your game is first coming out, then you'll probably get a lot more eyeballs and a lot more excitement about it because pe- it's just right there. But I think creatively, going on Early Access gives you a chance to refine your game and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know, man. Like, I think probably we would have done it but it's hard for a multiplayer game on early access. Um, like our game never got to that critical mass where enough people were playing it that it could just be a game that you could just play online. Like because and if there's if you don't have a certain amount of players, then people can't just play whenever they want. So then your your player base drops um, to zero, and and then they're just hoping that you do something that causes it it to hit that spike and so we were always what we did was we just embraced the fact that we have a really low population and we just set up things like a community group chat and all that stuff where if people want to play they can just message each other and be like hey you want to play secret ponchos but there wasn't we didn't have those thousands of concurrent players where you could just always find a game and stuff like that you know so um now our challenge is really getting it to that point but um i don't know creatively it was super useful though and i think i think making a good game is probably more important than making a successful game to me. So I think I'd probably do the early access again. Yeah. You know, I think, uh, you really can't learn what your game is about until you have people really hammering on it and checking it out. And, you know, it's one thing for you guys to play it and understand what it's about, but it's another thing to have, you know, a larger audience that, that didn't, you know, play it from the very beginning and didn't see it change. And, you know, they're seeing it with fresh eyes so that they can come in, play it, understand what it is, point out things that you guys didn't even dream about because that always happens, right? You develop the game, you're like, people are going to play it like this. And then they play it in the polar opposite way that you're you're thinking. Uh, and I think it, it's, I mean, I think it's a good thing, especially with multiplayer stuff, right? Because you can see how different people react with it and the competitive scene especially right it's good to see where those things are that that break that you don't know about and you know that's i mean that's why a lot of games have betas right so they can put it out in front of people and find out what works and what doesn't work and tweak and change and it's i think it's just harder for for indie devs because they're you know it's a smaller group of people they're not like mega rich or wealthy and have lots of funding to do stuff they just have to you know be scrappy and use what they can and i think early access is a potentially good way to do it especially if you can come out with something that's polished right and like i think what you guys released like looked good and and played well and then you know from that point at the very least you can start to get some really formative information that will affect the game and make it better because like you're saying it's going up in in uh quality rankings from customers so that's a good thing yeah and it's it's all because of just the longer it's out on early access and the more we refine it with our community, it just gets a tighter and tighter game. And the high bar for a competitive multiplayer game is is, is quite high. Like there's, like I mentioned, it's really weird for an indie studio to be trying to take on a game in this space. And the reason we're doing it is just because we love these type of games. But, I mean, there's it's, it's tough competition. And there's a lot of, a lot of ways that you can... Um, break your game like if you know like if people if your community supports not there or if your game is too hard to learn or if it's the things that make it cool are too hidden you know those kind of things are are very subtle and you have to kind of read your audience a lot you know and i think yeah it's 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 early access is a really cool program i see people getting like i saw sony was talking about doing an early access program and all of a sudden, there was like a lot of backlash. People were like, "Why do we want to pay for broken games and stuff?" But I mean, 
I, I, I thought it'd be really cool if they do that because I would have loved to be able to iterate our PS4 game with a community before launching it, you know, and as a developer. Like, not everyone has to buy it, but at least it's nice that you could just, like, um, see your customers playing a game instead of just, like, your friends and family. Yeah, no, I makes perfect sense to me. I think the the hard part with the early access is there's a lot of people that, you know, there there are games that come out that people don't support. They'll put it out and they make some money off of it, and then they just don't go back to developing it. And so there's you know there's this connotation with some people that it's a broken game, right? But then there's other developers that take it seriously and put the game out and they improve and iterate and make it better and they strive to you know make their product good. Right, so, right. Yeah, I think it, Catch Twenty Two. There's some good stuff, and then there's there's some downsides to it. But either way, good sir. We've been talking for about an hour. That's about the length of the show. So uh, I wanted to say thank you for coming on and talking about uh, the game. Where should people go to check it out? Um, the best place to check it out is uh, our website on um, www.secretponchos.com, and um, we're on the Steam store, so I mean, you could just go pick it up on on early access, and uh, it'll unlock um, it'll unlock the full game when it's ready. The game's coming out September 29th, and um, people, if you buy it on early access, though, we give a free gift key to everyone who buys it on early access because the community is smaller. So I would recommend just picking it up on early access, um, and then you get a free key, and then you get the free version, the full version when it comes out. Very cool. Um, well, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Um, and if you'd like to hear more episodes of Game Devastation, just go to podbean.com backslash Game Devastation or patreon.com backslash Stephen Frost. You can also check it out on iTunes. So thank you for checking it out. Yosef, once again, thank you for joining us. And to everybody else, adios. Adios.